Bienvenidos al Mestizo Podcast, the show for the mixed people of the mixed church. On this podcast, we explore the complicated challenges of being part of, serving in, and growing a migrant church in El Siglo XXI. As first-generation immigrants age out of their leadership and the Mestizo Church transitions to the second and third generation, how does the migrant church continue to thrive? What should a migrant church look like today? These questions and more what we explore together with your host, Emmanuel Padilla, and la doctora Elizabeth Conde Frazier. Your hosts are Puerto Ricans, so you're going to hear some Spanglish de vez en cuando here on the Mestizo Podcast. It's part of who we are. Today we sit down with Reverenda Doctora Alexia Salvatierra to discuss community development between Californios and recent immigrants, asking questions about how she manages to develop mutuality between the immigrant community, recent arrivals, and the citizen. So sientas en casa, make yourself at home, and let's get started. Hermana, saludos. Let me say that I, I feel like I am with Tupac and Biggie. The, the madrina, the madrina from the east coast and from the west coast. Ever. I feel like I am with the two leaders of, of of the of the theological world from either end of the coast, and I I don't know what to feel about it. Well, we're sisters, yeah. and um, you're you're a friend, so we're not going to be ganging up on you in any way. <laughs> not okay? at all. And we're the madrina, which is much softer than Godfather, really. Yeah, amen. Yeah. Like way softer. Equally fierce, but way softer. Hey, it is a privilege to be in conversation with both of you. Uh, obviously, Elizabeth and I have these conversations often, but Doctora Salvatierra, it's been it's been a long time desire of mine to have you on the show, to hear more about your work and and to drill into the ways in which you have developed uh, a long legacy of ministry now at this point with others who have continued your work in unique and, and flourishing ways. It's been really generative. So let me also welcome those who are listening to us for the first time. Welcome to a mixed space, a place where we are neither aquí ni allá, we like to say, people who live in the hyphen, and we're excited that you're joining us. Uh, we also want to let you know that World Outspoken recently launched a learning center where you can take courses addressing the very issues that your church might be facing related to the topics that we discuss on this podcast. As you wrestle with issues of language, culture, intergenerational conflict, how you might even address questions of preaching, go to learn.worldoutspoken.com to access courses that dive deeper into the subjects that we address on the show. Again, learn.worldoutspoken.com. Let me also remind you that if you enjoy these conversations that we have on the Mestizo podcast, one of the ways in which you can help us is by subscribing to the show on your favorite podcast platform, leaving us a review, and letting us know how you've joined the conversation, how you've engaged, questions you've had, doubts that you've addressed, everything in between. Uh, lastly, follow us on social media, Facebook, Instagram, at Twitter, at World Outspoken. And if you have a question about the conversation we have today, don't forget that you can leave us a message at 312-725-2995. That's 312-725-2995. Leave us a 30-second voicemail with your name, city, y pregunta, and we'll discuss it on the last episode of the season. All right, uh, Dr. Salvatierra, one of the questions that I wanted to ask you, just to kind of start us off, is I wondered if we can focus on your kind of personal history first. And I wanted to ask you about your name, your last name, Salvatierra. What do you know about the history of your name? And, and what does that history mean to you? 
Oh, I don't know a lot about the history. That's not sort of how our family rolls. Um, but it is funny. I mean, people always say to me, oh, what a perfect name for what you do. And it's like, no, the majority of the family does not do this. <laughs> nah. There's one other pastor in, in the family, literally the whole big family network. So no, no, it's just God's thing. You know, my first name, Alejandra is my actual first name. Alexia is my sobrenombre. But, um, you know, it means helper and defender of humanity. <laughs> Which is oh, you didn't funny. have a choice here, girl. I had no choice, Mia. I had no choice. But, no, it's funny. Like, who knows how things affect you? But, no, my, you know, my family are actually um, from Russia and Mexico. So, but actually, I just found out recently it's actually it was Ukraine. It was just called Russia at the time that my yeah that my grandparents came. Um, but you know they were anti-church. They were socialist, which is part of how my parents got together, right? Is mm -hmm. that is that that was something that they had in common? So I was I was raised with that orientation that you know that the purpose is not to just know the world. The purpose of life is not just to know the world, but to change it. But, you know, that was um, not religious at all in my family. That was anti-religious. I became a Christian in the Jesus movement. I'm that old. Yeah. In the Jesus movement. You know, there's still an active Jesus movement gathering not too far from me here in Chicago. Oh, no, de veras. No, I have no idea. Yeah. Well, every once in a while, I see, I see somebody like I was at Urbana, and I was going down the escalator and they were going up the escalator and they were like, yeah, we were about the same age and they were like, Jesus movement. And I said, oh, yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. That's amazing. Yeah. Well, you brought up you brought up the question of age, which obviously I'm not going to ask you how old you are. But I do want to ask about the book that you wrote, Faith Rooted Organizing. I know that you co-wrote it with another, but it's almost 10 years old now. And I wanted to ask, as things changed and as um, the world has evolved, obviously, politically, we've really gone through it. Uh, January 6th, not too long ago, just a year ago, really changed the, the landscape of how we might talk politically and engage. I'm curious, as you look back on your book. Have the changing circumstances around us. As you look back at your book, what would you say is uh, something that you would add to the book that you'd go, man, I really think we need to address this new thing? Well, you know, what, what's important to understand first about the book is that we very intentionally did not create a model like a manual, like do this, do that, ese paso, otro paso. No, that's not what we did. That the book is a set of stories basically written around three questions that you know the whole faith rooted organizing model is around questions and then how you answer those questions and practice on the ground locally so the three questions are eternal they don't change so the questions are you know what does it look like if we do our organizing in a way that is formed by our faith from the roots on up so our assumptions about power our assumptions about individuals about communities that you know how how do those assumptions how are those assumptions shaped by our faith the second question is um what does it look like for us to contribute all the gifts of our faith to god's larger movement for justice and then the third question is how do we organize our people to bring all our gifts so those questions don't change what changes is how you answer them on the ground but but always the model was about people answering them on the ground in different contexts and then sharing sharing their best practices. So I, w I would say the only difference now 
um, is that there's a there's a very acute tension. It's not that it never existed, but a very acute tension between building bridges and um, battle. You know that there is a very intense sense in our society of, you know, the the fever crisis of the battle being open, you know, and being fought very hotly, um, and. Um, and I'm not somebody who's a 100% pacifist. I think there are moments for struggle and intense struggle between people. But I also think that you never lose the preciousness of the person in front of you if your battle is, a, is rooted in faith, that you're always attempting to hold on to family, the family of God, the big family. You hold on to family. You make familia wherever you go and that means that you build bridges but there's a real tension between this sort of battle spirit that we're in and the desperate need to build bridges and so i i think probably i would be more explicit of, we would pull more stories from that now like the stories the book is all full of vignettes of what faith root organizing looked like at that moment i think we would have to talk a lot more about how people are living with that tension on the ground so there would be more of those stories um it's also interesting that now i work so transnationally and like the book has not been published in spanish because the like more progressive publishers in spanish are all in latin america and they're like the book has too many u.s examples <laughs> Like now I would draw, it is an international movement. It basically has been since the beginning, but now I would be very conscious about drawing stories from all over the world and not just stories from the US. Couple of things as I listen to you speak. Um, one of them is you speak about the tension and the battle and how we're in a moment of battle. I think that we build bridges differently in moments of battle. How, what are the differences about how we have to build bridges in a time of battle versus a time of just tension? Mm -hmm. hmm. Well, I think that, you know, part of what the faith-rooted organizing model, which, which really draws from my experiences in the Philippines. So I was part of the pro-democracy movement um, against the dictator, Ferdinand Marcos, from 1984 to 1987 in the Philippines. And that was very, very formative for me. And part of how that movement was organized was sectorally. So that's part of where the whole idea of faith-rooted organizing in my mind came from, was really recognizing what the implications are of organizing a movement like a body. So feet don't do what hands do. You know, they don't, like we have different call. And I think that that's particularly important, Elizabeth, in this moment of a bridge building and battle is that we're not all called to do the same thing. And some of us are called much more to be organizers and some of us much more to be prophets. And it, the important thing is that we're not against each other, the people who have different callings, that I really am called to stand in the spaces of division and bring healing and mutual understanding. That's at core to who my calling at this point in my life. But that means, but I have friends that are called to the battle and how do we stay connected with each other in a mutually accountable way? Is I think what's really necessary for this time. Yes, because we inform one another. Mm. One thing informs the other. We, we're standing in this moment in different places with the ability to have a different vantage point 
and to bring those perspectives to one another. And the greater the picture that we have, because we're in communication with one another, the better that each one of us informs the work of the other in the place Amen. and through the giftings that we have. I think that's really important. I've seen that in some of the work that um, you and I have sought to do together. Uh, we stand in different places. Our giftings are different. But I'm informed by you. You're informed by me. And that helps both of us in Amen. what it is that we do. No say question more, about it. Say more about, um, so let's talk about uh, real groups here. So we have Californianos and we have immigrants. Say more about your, your work with them. And then there's a part of immigration that a lot of people haven't looked at, which I think is so important. And that is that when a family leaves country of origin and they come here, those who are left in country of origin still have struggles and still have to deal with what it means that someone has left and what it means that you're accepting help from the one who left and even politically what that means, right? El Distrito 17 of uh, El Salvador are the people who are immigrants who send back las remesas, right? Yeah. Mm -hmm. and El Salvador is completely dependent on remesas. It's something right. like so that's know, their 10 percent of their, of their national income is remesas. That's Something their more than that even. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So, but in the meantime, someone's being sacrificed over here on this side, right? So family life, uh, everything is, is different. You're now beginning to address uh, people in countries of origin around issues of immigration. Say more about all of these pieces. Sure. Um, so this is a transnational world right now. You know, that many of us, that the reality of the Internet means that um, it's the flowering of what was always true. We were always transnational people, right? Um, and, of course, you guys at Puerto Rico, that's very obvious because you can go back and forth so easily. Whereas for most of us, it's become increasingly more difficult over the years, right? But, you know, I teach, um, Fuller is about 80% online right now. So in all of my Spanish-speaking classes, I literally have people all over the globe in the same class. And what's interesting is to notice that um, an increasing numbers of them have ministries that they're connected to in more than one country. So that they're actively transnational, including in the U.S. and in a country in Latin America. And that's true whether they're based in the U.S. or whether they're based in Latin America, that they're equally transnational. Um, and then... At Centro Latino, we have what we call Diplomado Superiore, which is, you know, professional certificate programs. Uh, we had we started one on the La Respuesta de la Iglesia y la Crisis Migratoria about four years ago, which was initially focused on Spanish-speaking um, church leaders in the U.S. And how, you know, how do we help the church respond to the migration crisis on multiple levels? But then um, we just started about a year ago working on... Um, the la respuesta de la iglesia a la crisis humana de movilización. That's how they wanted to name it, which is the same thing, but in Latin America for Latin Americans. And we just last weekend graduated 137 pastoral leaders in, out of 15 countries in that. And we're now doing it in Portuguese, um, which is going to start in April, the, the next, the next uh, cohort. But 
you know, what, what's interesting to me is, um, and then I just finished, <laughs> I just finished teaching a course, my migration course in the master's program at Fuller. I just finished teaching a course in Spanish on migration. And I, I, it's because of the Venezolano, the Nicaraguense, right? The IT, like there are, like now Latin America is really both a receiving and sending place in major ways. And so everybody was grappling with that, right? Like, how does that feel different? Like we had members of the class who were in, who were Tejano, right? And then we have members of the class who are in Ecuador and it's the first time in their life that they've ever dealt with migrants, you know? And people didn't even leave Ecuador by and large. You know, and if they did, they went to Colombia. You know, they didn't go to the United States. So this is, or Venezuela antes, right? When it was prosperous. So, you know, this is, uh, the world is, of migration is changing really rapidly. Amen. So that, that, that's one whole set of answers. I also want to say that the work that I've been doing for a long time around migration in the U.S. Um, is is really specifically about bringing citizens and immigrants together as peers on common sacred ground. And then over the last number of years, engaging puentes, who are bilingual, bicultural millennials, um, in, in being the bridge between immigrant and non-immigrant churches working on migration. So that's a work that I've been involved in for, I don't know, since 2007. So. So I want to ask about that part, because the reason we wanted to talk to you on the show is quite frankly, because of that dynamic. A lot of the listeners of the Mestizo podcast are thinking quite a bit of the the battle, if we use that metaphor that you talked about, right, the battle or bridge, the battle that they face here in the U.S., the conflicts that are continually charging their communities, right? And one of the questions that has come up often is how we might bridge these communities of battlers with other battlers who are facing issues back home, what Elizabeth mentioned, right? Those who, who remain in Ecuador, Bra you know, Brazil, Puerto Rico, et cetera, et cetera. You know, I have to admit, I have to own that I don't think often enough with those who are in Abyayala, right? If we want to use the, the kind of ancient yeah. name. Um, one of the reasons that, you know, I wanted especially to join this conversation is because I don't often think in dialogue with those in Latin America. I've read Latin American theologians plenty, but this idea of gathering us even electronically over Zoom, right, to, to have these kinds of conversations, it seems increasingly important to me as we think about our respective battles, that we make sure that our bridges are solid. And I have to confess, um, as we as we talked about earlier, you mentioned the importance of stories. Doctora Salvatierra, I want to name one from my life that I think frames how I enter this conversation. So when I was in college years ago, it took me seven years to finish my undergrad. It took me forever. So one of those early, early years uh, in undergrad, I remember uh, a student, non-Latino student asked, um, you know, what's re it was me, myself, this other student and a brother who I was close friends with, Mexicano. Yes, listen, what's the real difference between Mexicans and Puerto Ricans? Which already that question is tinged with all sorts of uh, racial perceptions and everything else. But setting that aside for a second, what I want to reflect on is my own answer. I remember before uh, my Mexican friend, brother, got to say anything, the first thing that came out of my mouth was, well, for one, we're already citizens. I said that about Puerto Ricans. And while malice wasn't intended, I always go back to that moment and think, 
what was really going on for me there? Why was it so important to so quickly say, oh, for one, we're already citizens, right? Uh, there's something about that moment that I always feel I need to interrogate and go back to as I think about building bridges with with La Familia Inmigrante, right? Um, el que es inmigrante. And so I wanted to ask you about how you help the citizen interrogate their perceptions around Latin America so that they can build those bridges. How you help them interrogate those perceptions? Oh, that's such a good question. Because, of course, there are, are lots of different contexts. Yeah, maybe that's not your place of departure, but somewhere along the line in the conversation, do yeah. you come to that? Yeah, no. I mean, there are stories that come to me. I mean, everything is story, right? Like, I think that the work that we've done in the U.S. with immigrants and citizens um, is not focused on Latin America. It's focused on, on what it means for all of us to be in these communities together. Like, what mm -hmm. does it mean that we share life in our communities together, right? And what do we bring to that? And how do we stand on God's definition of us and not our society's definition of us so that we can do that? Um, but but I want to I wanna back up because there's a couple stories that just come to me. And I think in stories, we all think in stories. <laughs> claro. Um, so one story is I when I had to teach my migration course in Spanish for the first time. I've taught it in English multiple times. I never taught it in Spanish, right? Um, I had to find different sources. So I had to start reading research in Latin America on migration. And I found that it was really disorienting. And so I was like asking myself, like, what is so disorienting about this? Like, why, what is so different? And I realized that there is a drumbeat in all the research that I've read in the United States on migration and been part of. And the drumbeat is, is migration good or bad? Are, migra are migrants worthy or not, right? None of that was present in the research in Latin America. <laughs> it was much more sort of objective, like, oh, people move. What is that like? <laughs> you know, there's no evaluative component. <laughs> And there wasn't like, a judgment on the person. Right. There's no judgment. On there's the evaluation. Mm -hmm. And I was like, oh, you know, like, this is where the history of racism in the U.S. is, is yes. so formative, right? That we have to evaluate people. Like in Latin, and I'm not saying there's no racism in Latin America, you know, hijo de, I'm not saying that, but I'm saying, but, it, but it's different. And let me explain how it's different. So this is the other story. But first of all, I want to go back to this study. There was one study that just really, really hit me because it was talking about the fact that people have been coming from Guate, where I have family also, um, coming from Guate since the 1970s in good numbers. So what does that mean? It means that there are really well-established trade routes, like well-established pathways, that if somebody's coming from Guate, they have all kinds of places they can go where there are their people. And I know that personally. I know that through my family. But I had never brought that to consciousness, that there was this circle, that people who are here talk back to people that are there, that people are there decide whether they're going to come or not. It's not happening in a vacuum, right? So, but, but what hit me about that was in our movements, like our sanctuary movements. I was one of the co-founders of the sanctuary, the new sanctuary movement. You know, in these movements, um, we forget that. And we think that we have to help these poor people. 
we forget that these networks exist, right? And that if there's only two reasons why people outside the networks have to help. And one reason is when there's a crisis where there's an overflow and an overflow is temporary. It's now forever. And then the second reason is when there are people who for one reason or another either have been thrown out of their network or don't wanna be with their network. And those are people with particular kinds of issues. And, and then what happens is that the people who are not immigrants respond to these people with these issues and it increases their, their racist perspective. <laughs> and it's sort of like, whoa, whoa, like all of this came to me because I was reading this thing, right? So that was one. The other story though that I wanna get to, which is connected, is when the caravanas were happening, you know, lots of people, it was a moment of crisis, right? So the caravanas are happening in, and uh, we were doing immersion experiences, but we were doing them differently. We saw it as a moment for us to go to the Mexican churches. We had Puentes lead them, and then we were going to the Mexican churches to talk about their ministry with the migrants, right? So we were putting it on its head. It's not, we're going down there to minister. You know, we're going to go down there to support our brothers and sisters who are ministering, right? But anyhow, we're in a taxi. We're in a taxi on the way to the cut of, to the, the campamento. And uh, the taxi driver is railing about Central Americans. <laughs> and he's talking about how they're lazy. And he's talking about how they can't be trusted. And then he says, Y ni le gusta la comida que quiere pizza. <laughs> <laughs> like, just ridiculous. So let me translate in English. They don't even like our food. They just want pizza, you know. And then I said to him, but what do you think of the Mara Salvatrucha, you know? What do you think? He said, oh, he said, terrible, horrible, you know. So, And he said, I said, so what do you think? If you know that the Mara, the people who are persecuting these people, are terrible, like, well, what do you think about this? And he said, es que tenemos que ayudarles. Son seres humanos. We have to help them. They're human beings. So hang on. I, like I, I want to pause there for a second. He had, this is a Latino. Who yes, had, of course. He's Mexicano. Yeah. So he's holding two views at once, right? Yes. On one end, he is saying these migrants uh, from Latin America are, they're, they're lazy, et cetera, et cetera. All the kind of rhetoric, rhetoric of white supremacy that's embedded here in the U.S. On the same, in the same mind, right? He's saying, oh, but they're human beings that need help. Is that right? Did I get that right? Yes, that's, you got it right. You got it right. You got it right. And I thought, I thought again, it sort of reminded me of what I was studying, the migration stuff that I was studying in Latin America. It's like the fundamental assumption of racism, of the history in the United States, the formative history, is that they're not seres humanos. Whoever the other is, they're not human beings. They're not full human beings. They're three quarters of a human being, right? Whereas the and I'm not saying that that controls us. I'm saying that it is deeply formative, right? And that's why we have to reform people with the gospel. But, um, but the, whereas the, in Latin America, terrible racism, right? Of a very different sort. But somos seres humanos. Our parents raped our mothers. Our fathers raped our mothers. But then they married them. We're, we're, we're not different species, we're seres humanos. And so, you know, there's a way in which, I mean, I've been thinking a lot since since we did we started the Diplomado in Latin America, since I taught this class. And we actually had people who were graduates of the Diplomado, including um, Chicanos who were graduates of the Diplomado who were acting as mentors for the class. So it was very cool. But, 
But thinking a lot about this deeper question, Emanuela, you raised that I've never thought that much about, which is how do we, we really learn from Latin America in the United States? And, and it's, a, it's a two-way street, of course. I mean, the, like um, my friend Robert Chao Romero said a few years ago to me in a way that felt really good because I'm pura pocha, right? Because he said Spanglish is not bad Spanish. He said it's a uh, new language. I don't want to take away the new language, the hybridization and all that it creates and all that it gives. You know, I'm not saying that we just have to like bow on our knees and become Latin Americans, you know. No, but is this dialogue is very important. And you in Puerto Rico, you have a lot to offer us about this. Because, real quick, because shameless plug. Back and forth. Yeah, yeah, real quick, shameless plug. We have our class, Lingua Franca. I just mentioned the Learning Center. It's all about how Spanglish can be the new tongue. So amen <laughs> to that. <laughs> you know, before Elizabeth goes, I want to ask you, you keep using this, this uh, term, you know, you talked about how we're all humans, somos humanos, but then you're designating a kind of key human in this battle and bridges metaphor. And you're referring to certain folks as puentes. Can you tell us about who is a puente and, and why they're so fundamental to starting to create these dialogues that we're talking about, this two-way street between Latin America and those of us who are here in the U.S.? So the Puentes is something that actually exists. Let me do a little plug for them. They're a network. Um, but And of course, they're, they're not the only network of bilingual, bicultural millennials. But this is something that actually happened historically, which is um, that when we were working on uh, Mateo 25, Matthew 25, M25, which is the network in Southern California that I'm part of and leadership with of immigrant and non-immigrant believers working together is when we were working together, we were really clear that we needed to work together, but it was really hard. It was just really hard. There were just so many um, chokes that were not even able to be worked through. Like people would just despair from the beginning. And so what we noticed was that where they were being worked through is where there was somebody present who was bilingual, bicultural, second generation, who was connected because they could speak for both sides to each other. They could mediate. And then out of that, we began to say, okay, we were just forming our board. We just moved from steering committee to a board. We were like saying, okay, those are puentes and we need to actually have them be a third of the board. Like we need to recognize that these young people who often end up on the margins of both communities actually need to be bridges, not, not marginalized, that their, their identity is a vocation. And they're mostly 1.5ers. They're mostly people who were brought here as small children. Um, but some of them are people who were born here, but very close to their larger family networks. But they formed the Puentes Network. And um, they, they're they amazing. And they do the a lot of the immigration work with us in the M25, but they also have their own work that is independent. They do immersions into across the border, but they do lots of things. They're exploring all kinds of things. Um, so, yeah. And but there's a they're not the only one. We're actually working. Elizabeth and I are part of a project pulling together people this summer from the different networks of Puentes, um, who are who are catalytic church leaders. So it's really important. You've named uh, both of you have been naming several things along the way, and I want to just sort of uh, bring them to our attention together. There are different generations, and each generation brings a set of gifts. Not only do individuals or cultures bring gifts, but um, generations 
bring gifts, right? So we have a generation of people in Latin America who are used to thinking about uh, immigration in some positive ways. They're understanding that people uh, mobility is is a right that people have, whereas we're not we're not saying that that's even a right here in the United States, right? Es un derecho, you know. You have the right to move wherever you think is best for you to have life, and that's a right that people in Latin America are willing to uh, give to one another. That's part of what they understand is going to take place. How they then deal with, you know, how you accommodate this group or accommodate that group or, you know, what takes place or doesn't take place is more about class. Yeah. More than racial, it's class pieces uh, that you have to deal with in Latin America. And so uh, I just want to, you know, put that out there that a lot of the conflict there is about class issues, right? Now, that class issue does translate into some of the um, uh, racial pieces, right? Especially yeah. around indigenous, indigenous people. people. Yeah. Right. Absolutely. Right. So, you know, that's there. Um, but then you have those who are here and have learned in their formation to see the ones who are coming up uh, over the border as people who don't have the right to anything unless we say they have the right, okay? And that already negates worthiness, which is the, the chapter that I write about in, in my book when I look at you know uh, conversations with immigrant families is the issue of worthiness. Because then families come here and that's the issue that they have to work on the hardest, right? Immigrant families here are always trying to prove that they are worthy. And that eventually in the next generations, as they're here, in the next generations, turns into a conservatism that sides on the, the place that is in conflict with the newcomer, right? We've tried to become so-and-so worthy, and we're trying to prove ourselves that, hey, we're like the citizen here, etc., that now the next generations can evolve into persons that expound on that narrative more furiously than those who started that narrative, mm. right? And that becomes surprising to us. It's like, how on earth can this person do this when they forgot how they came in here? You know, they forgot how their mother or their grandmother got here. Hello, how can this person be speaking this way? And yeah. so that becomes difficult for us, right? But we have to understand what the journey has been. Then there's the, the group that you just spoke about, the Puentes uh, group. And the Puentes group both 1.5 and second generation people who stay close to their country of origin, identity, and history. And that's a hard thing to do. You gotta work at that. I'm second generation. I had to work at maintaining my identity, my connection, understanding my history from my you know, country of origin of, of my parents and grandparents. I had to work at that because there is nothing here in the United States that helps you to 
uh, have any of those pieces. You don't get that in school. There's no curriculum that does that unless there are uh, cultural groups that are trying to nurture the community. Uh, in my church, we did that. And that's really the church was the place where I learned not only about my identity, but you could have someone from Cuba, you could have someone from Panama, you could have someone from Nicaragua, you could have the Argentino, you know, we all learn from each other's identities. And we learned to respect and to love one another in that space, right? As different as we were, because you had to have, you know, you had to cook up different menus for any church gathering. But what you learn as a person who has to navigate that is you learn insights and perspectives about how to help groups on opposite ends to speak to each other. Because you learn the language and the interpretations from either side, right? So I learned that when I was at one time translating uh, between the denomination leaders and the Latino pastors. And I found out that I wasn't translating, I was interpreting. I knew how to take what the Latino pastors were saying and put it in a language and in a framework that these denominational leaders are going to understand who are not Latino, right? And I knew how to do the opposite. And then I also knew in the interpretation yeah. how to um, place those words in such a way that it was convincing to either side to take a particular common position. Now, yeah. unless you knew both languages in, in those groups, you didn't know what I was doing. But I was being a puente, right? Yes. And I would never have said that, but that's what I was being. I was understanding, oh my God, this is what needs to happen here. This is the best possible solution for this. I was doing problem solving in my head very, very quickly and helping people to kind of move toward that solution place as a possibility, as a prime possibility for them to look at, right? And so I was playing with all of that. But you grow up into that. Yeah. You grow up into that. And the very reasons why you don't fit in these groups are the very reasons why you are the puente to both groups. Amen. And, you know, you were talking about generation, and I was thinking, Elizabeth, that you and I were puentes all our lives. You know, it's not new. What's new is a collective consciousness around it. Yes. Like I was just navigating, code switching, navigating worlds always. And you were too. And many people of our generation. But we never would have thought of making an organization of puentes. Like that was not even in our heads, right? Or world outspoken for that matter, right? The organization that hosts this podcast exists on that premise. Yeah. 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 And it's it's something that is a new thing that God is doing, that people have a collective consciousness in a different way. Um, the other thing I, I was thinking of was um, some of the statistics. Like I, people were asking me to do, um, you know, analysis of the election, the Othmiayuda. Um, <laughs> you know, you get in a certain position and then people ask you for all these things. Like Elizabeth and I are now in these positions where like people ask you these questions and you're like, oh, wait a minute. Um, but, but 
I went, I always go, I'm a good dog. I go and do research, even if I don't know the answer. So they were asking me for the analysis of the election results. And so one of the interesting things that I found was a nuance around the way that the Hispanic community, they always talk like we're one community nationally. Otra vez, que Dios me ayuda, right? But it's like, what are the nuances around Hispanic response to migration? And what when I started digging into the research, uh, what I found out is that very, very high levels of passionate support for the DREAM Act, right? Almost across the board. Not refugees, not asylum seekers. That dreamers are quote unquote worthy, right? Mm-hmm. That dreamers are, you know, according to the standards they are then of the society. Because they grew up here, so, so, you know, they identify with them. Yeah. And so, you know, they are our best and brightest according to our constant apologetic of how are we are worthy. Right. Whereas refugees in the minds of most people, there are worse. There are shameful story, like because every refugee is a, um, you know, blazon um, demonstration of the violence in Latin America. Right. If we have to admit that these people at the border are refugees, we have to say we, we realize there's deep shame. It feeds into the story that Latin America Latin America is a violent place and Latin Americans are barbaric people. And, you know, so we don't want anything to do as a, as a larger community with the refugees and not, not everybody, but it's something like only 30% support for the asylum seekers from Central America. That's intense, right? The other thing I wanted to, to raise was the, um, the human rights question. One of the interesting things about all of all of the research in Latin America around migration is that it's a human rights conversation. Mm-hmm. And it's a human rights conversation that people are really passionate about. And the first time I read that, I was like, ¿Qué es eso? You know? what, do you, what do you mean human rights? Who cares about human rights? Whoever talks about human rights right? in the United States, it's not a conversation. Well, it's, it's a, a conversation we're talking about somebody else not doing it. Oh, yeah, like they're out there in the world, whether people are yeah. right. right. But, but there's no conversation about how are human rights part of our values in the United States or core American values? Like that's just, the phrase isn't even used, right? So so even trying to sort of deal with that, like that was for the Latin Americans and we had, you know, a wide variety, talk about class in our classes, right? Wide variety. Um, but, you know, they were all interested in the human rights question. Let me ask, you both have talked about the ways in which we're socialized right? The ways in which we're socialized to think not in terms of human rights, for instance, the ways in which you both, because of your social experiences, kind of defaulted toward a vocation of being puente. Uh, I want to ask a kind of alternative question here, perhaps uh, perhaps play some devil's advocate here, because what I think is also important, and you both have said it, but I think what's also important is to uh, not romanticize either of these two uh, metaphors, right? Not romanticize the battler or romanticize the bridge, the bridge person, right? Um, I think right now, if if I had to had to kind of consider the ways in which our our listeners are thinking, I think uh, because of social media, because of the focus on some of the things happening in the U.S., there's some socialization toward battle, right? Toward battler. Uh, that's my sense, at least. I don't have the data. I've not done the research, Dr. Salvatierra, so let me own that. But that, that's my sense as I think about the World Outspoken listener. So I wanted to ask you both, right? How do we, A, avoid romanticizing these roles so that people default toward one 
far too much, right? Either the battler or the bridge builder. And then I want us to think about how we might avoid that, right? How we might avoid uh, too strongly leaning in one or the other mode. So I'm going to go somewhere. Um, go ahead. Go ahead. Go ahead. I, I want to go yeah, where I go, which is um, the ancient word. Uh, so, so I feel like we are a country right now where grace is not a core value. You know, grace is a biblical value, right? And it's one of those biblical plumb lines that that we are all just so profoundly broken. And without grace, we just don't, we don't survive. And our communities don't survive. So, so grace, but then the, the word, the biblical word, sort of that, that we have to talk to for the battle. So that's the word for bridging, but that's the ancient word, like not bridging, not mediating grace. Right. What does it mean that we're together under grace? Right. And then, you know, the ancient battle world word is justice. And what does it mean? Sedica, sedica, right? So what does it mean to be rooted in justice? See, when you root in the biblical words, you have all the core paradoxes held right there together, right? Not, not separated. So that's, I always go to the word. I'm very Protestant. <laughs> I go to, I'm Lutheran. I go to the word. You're a good Lutheran. I was going to say yeah, yes. I'm a good Lutheran. I go to the word. Let me add to, that, to those words. And then grace and justice both fit within the larger paradigm of covenant. Mm, nice. Right? Mm, that's yeah, that's where it's at. It's covenant. And yeah. so if we're covenant people, we're, we're, you know, we're called to be in covenant with God and therefore with others. And we're called to always remember what how it is that God treats us. And for us to then treat others in accordance with that. So we've not really reflected on what God's grace has meant for us. And then within covenant, there's also what I uh, yelled out before, which is accountability. You can be a battler and we need some people to be battlers to sort of, you know, say this doesn't belong here, etc. And to make something be heard that has not been heard. But you have to do it with a purpose. And your purpose cannot be violence in the end because it doesn't lead to anything that can be constructive. You cannot construct anything on violence. And so you have to know what your purpose is and you have to keep clear what your purpose is. And I think that that's what the Puente person makes clear for the, for the, the battler, right? But the battler also makes clear for the Puente person that there are some things that you can't compromise. That is not puentes at all cost, but that there are some things that you can't compromise on because then again, you are creating pathways that you're going to have to come back and rip up again. They're only temporary because you've not really looked at all of the pieces that need to be solved here, right? And that's the accountability and the dialogue that I think that they can both have. And then puente people have to be careful not to be manipulative because there's a lot of power in being a puente person, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> so keeping keeping ourselves accountable is also a part of the whole framework of covenant. Deuteronomy is all about covenant and therefore is all about justice and how we're to treat one another and so forth. And it's all about taking these pauses 
so that everybody says, okay, you know what? Let me forget the fact that I think that I'm better than you are, et cetera, et cetera. Let's have a feast. Let's have a feast together where I serve you because I'm used to having you serve me. You know, let's have a feast where we take on these different roles, where we don't feel like we have to be the way we've been socialized. Let's have a feast so that we can remember who we really are to one another created in the image of God. The banquet of God. Yes. Which is the foretaste of the feast to come. And that then, that pause for that feast calls us to those places where we can rest that and we can just be. And we look at each other and we have a whole different perspective for that moment. So we need a feast. Oh, we need man. a table of food. I, I told y'all I was with Biggie and Tupac. <laughs> the ways of this theological end here is wrapped. Uh, you know, Doctora Salvatierra, I want to ask you, I know that you've been writing, that you're working on some things. As we think about this feast idea, as we think about the ways in which uh, grace and justice in the biblical sense shape who we are, I know that you're writing something related to embedding these things deep in the, deep in the soil. Can you tell us more about the book that you have forthcoming, its title, what the premise is? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so one of the things that I, I see happening in the modern moment is that people are very ahistorical. Mm-hmm. And, and one of the battle cries that troubles me most is very ahistorical. That says that young people say nothing has changed. And, you know, I'm sorry, things have changed. Or they the don't know that, where things are coming from. Yes, Exactly. That things have some things have not changed, and some things have changed, right? And don't wipe away all our work, right? And so, um, but part of one of my early experiences that was really important in my life was the Base Christian Community Movement in Central America and in the Philippines, and that was a movement by people of color for people of color, by poor people for poor people. That was absolutely astounding in terms of the creation of covenant communities, Elizabeth, mm-hmm. like you were saying, mm-hmm. that were just, you know, operating on every level, right? Like live on every level. And so I've been wanting for a while to like go back and write the stories of these communities, right? For people and gather the stories and interview people. And so um Along the way, I bumped into my friend Brandon Rencher, who is, you know, 30 years younger than I am and black. And he has been he was excavating the Hush Harbors, the independent slave churches with a very similar sense that. But, you know, he hadn't experienced them like I had experienced the BCCs. But, you know, from a very similar sense that he had that there was something here, like deep roots that could be drawn from right for young people, particularly who were doing church planting and church renewal, which he is doing. So he is actively doing that in North Carolina. So we were like, oh, wow, we need to write a book together. And so we called the book Buried Seeds because of a uh, a saying that I heard in Latin America and the Philippines. But actually, it comes from a crazy Greek um, queer pro- queer poet. <laughs> it's a weird story. But, but it's all over the world because it works. And it's that they thought they buried us. They didn't realize we were seeds. <laughs> and, uh, you know, it was all over Latin America and the Philippines. And, you know, um, but so we decided the book, that's what the book is, that, you know, there are buried seeds. And our young people need that nutrition. They, 
you know, I had this funny conversation with my daughter, who's a millennial, uh, a while back where she was saying, I think we just need to burn it all down and start all over. And I said, Mija, are your friends like wiser and better people than my friends? What do you think? <laughs> and she just started laughing. She was like, no. <laughs> I went, okay, so let's talk. Hey, this is an important idea for our listeners, especially. I think you're right. As you say, this is a kind of ahistorical claim that things haven't changed. I think we need to be careful. And I want to take my opportunity here while I'm at it to say, uh, to give you all your roses, right? Y'all planted seeds and, and they have grown and they've been generative, not just here in the U.S., but across uh, the boundaries of the U.S. as well. And I'm very grateful for that. So, Doctora Salvatierra, thank you so much for joining us as we've been thinking about the ways in which we might be healthy battlers and bridge people, healthy puentes, healthy battlers, uh, that we might do so with grace and justice. For you, the listener, don't forget to follow us at World Outspoken on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. You can also follow Doctora Salvatierra's work at the center at Fuller, El Centro. Uh, Doctora Salvatierra, do you have anywhere you want to point them to specifically? No, this was amazing conversation. I'm just stunned with it. You know, I think, yeah. I think, yeah, if people want to check out Central Latino, we have all kinds of stuff happening there for them. Anybody's interested in the theological education, we want to be there for you. If you um, and come check us out, we're not for everyone. Uh, I, I should say one thing about that. A guy from Wheaton, who's a friend of mine, who's the chaplain, said, the problem with Fuller is that people come looking for an answer to you and they get 20. I said, no, that's our people. <laughs> Don't send us the people looking for an answer. If you're yeah. the people looking for 20 answers and to make up your own mind, you're the people who come to us. But, anyhow, hey, but you know, you check us out if you like what I'm, what I'm offering. I'm, we're there. Amen. We want to be there. Amen. And I want to tell the listeners as well, we have Dr. Salvatierra today, but we'll have in our next episode, Dr. Teresa Delgado, who will be joining us to talk about her personal connections to her research, including Puerto Rican literature that she read as she developed a decolonial theology of Puerto Rico. We're really, really excited to have her join us. That'll be coming out in two weeks from this episode. Again, if you have questions about the topic that we've discussed today, you can leave us a message at 312-725-2995-312-725-2995. You can leave us a 30-second voicemail with your name, city, y pregunta, and we'll discuss it on the last episode of the season. You can also submit those questions by using the link in our show show notes, look at me, uh, the link in our show notes, which allows you to type in your answer as well, your question as well. Elizabeth, you get the last word. Keep those images before you. All of us need to keep positive images before us right now. We are a people of covenant. What does that mean for all of us as we continue to engage this world with issues and callings having to do with justice, with reconciliation? What does it mean to be a people of covenant? Amen, amen. Ya está, se acabó. Oh, 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 oh,